welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Titus, and today I'm joined again by my friend Pete Spiliakos to talk about Rocky, Sylvester Stallone, and the whole series of movies, and his career, his development as an artist, and his own understanding of his achievements, of his place in the culture. Pete, thanks a lot for joining me. How are you doing? A new Creed movie is coming out. The previous Creed movie was a very worthy successor to Rocky and really better, more coherent than all the Rocky movies after the original and it portends maybe a better franchise even. And it's a great opportunity to talk about Rocky which came out 42 years ago was a shock in the climate of the 70s and in the culture of the 70s and nevertheless was true to what was really dark and threatening American self-understanding and confidence in that era. I'm doing outstanding. I'm, it's a pleasure to talk about these movies, especially Rocky, which is an all-time great movie, and Rocky sequels, which are not necessarily all-time great movies, but they're all very interesting. I think the sequels are better at being movies about Sylvester Stallone and being movies about society than they are at actually being movies. Whereas Rocky is a great film on its own terms, you don't necessarily have to know a lot about the context of 1976 to appreciate the movie. Now, it helps to appreciate every element of the movie, but it's a great movie even if you come into a cold, whereas the other movies are best understood contextually rather than as standalone artistic documents. Yeah, that's a very good distinction. The popularity of Rocky is something we can think will speak to future generations as well, and it wouldn't have been out of place in the Hollywood of the 30s or the America of the 30s either for that reason. Whereas these other movies are indeed more interesting than attractive, and it's more a case of learning about them and about the America of the times than learning anything from them or really feeling very moved. The original story captures very important things about America and about human nature that are so well dramatized, you just move along with it. They sweep you up and at the same time you're grateful, which I guess is why it's popular and it's a movie that people might want to see again. It's a case where you completely understand why this movie was a Best Picture winner and at the same time agree with it, which is, I think, a fairly rare combination. <laughs> This is exactly the sort of movie that should win Best Picture most of the time. It's a patriotic movie about people who understand just how much suffering and misery there is in America. It has what Christopher Lash called working-class realism, no illusions about how life works out. It is not trying to justify power or to justify success, but instead it's trying to give a man a path to human dignity and spends most of its time throwing so many obstacles in its path that you wonder how it's ever going to get there. It's quite unusual for its plotting for that reason and it reminded me of Frank Capra movies, which were often fairly depressive right up until the end. Which is actually true. I mean, one of my friends likes to say that It's a Wonderful Life is, you know, the scariest and most depressing Twilight Zone episode of all time, right up until the end. It's a Wonderful Life shouldn't open with angels talking, it should be open. Picture a man who's lost everything. I mean, that's much closer to the themes of It's a Wonderful Life than our popular culture's understanding of It's a Wonderful Life. It was a very saccharine movie. Rocky's power as a movie is grounded in its humanity. It's a rather unfortunate or a mistake that people remember it as a fight. And they don't even remember it as a fight. They remember it as a fight that Rocky wins, even though he lost, which basically sets up the sequels. And one of the reasons why people come back to Rocky over and over and over again is that setting up Rocky's character is what gives the fight its stakes. And we don't actually see very much of a fight in that movie. The fight itself takes maybe, what, 10 minutes of screen time? But people remember it as being a much bigger deal. But they remember it as being a much bigger deal because they've invested in this character so much 
And I remember reading an interview, maybe it was Sylvester Stallone, and he was talking about he, he had all kinds of arguments with the producers of the movie. They liked the script, but didn't want to make that script exact. And the first act has that long conversation where Rocky's walking down the street with that girl, and he's telling her, you know, if you have good friends, you know, you'll, people look at a good person. If you have bad friends, you'll be a bad person. And Rocky's kind of speaking from experience, because at this point, he's a downwardly mobile leg breaker. The producers want him to take that scene out because nothing happens. And Stallone is like, no, the scene has to be in there because investing in Rocky as a good guy is what makes the movie work. And the thing is, Rocky isn't out there. He's not a superhero. He's not fighting crime. In fact, Rocky is criminal, which means you have to put in a lot of work to show Rocky as being a good guy. Which is why in the movie, one of the most important things in the movie is that Rocky consistently treats people better than he absolutely needs to. He brings a passed out drunk into a bar. He humors Polly. Every time he meets somebody, he is able to rise above the situation and be a little bit nicer than he really needs to be. But that's also set against a rising tension within him. In other words, if Rocky's nature is just sweet, there's no drama to him being nice to people. But from the very beginning of the movie, to him getting beat up in the fight, to him obviously being gouged by the promoter, to another quiet scene where seemingly nothing happens is he's in his tiny apartment and he looks at his picture of himself. And he sees this kid with all this potential, and he's seeing the squalor of his life. He's not just being a good guy. He's rising above this extremely intense pressure, this disappointment, this resentment. Insult after insult. He overlooks them, and he's better than he absolutely needs to be, which makes him more admirable. And the thing is, a lot of the obstacles he's facing, they're not necessarily giant up. It's not a shootout. Mickey took away his locker because he's a loser. And Mickey's so intensely disappointed with him. The girl that he's interested in, who, by the way, as far as the audience can tell at first, is not particularly attractive, is not particularly witty, but he likes her anyway, keeps giving him the cold shoulder. His boss's driver is constantly insulting him. In situation after situation in a situation, Rocky is rising above tensions that aren't necessarily operatic. They're just human. They're the kinds of things that set normal people off, except Rocky usually doesn't go off. There's one scene where Rocky goes off. That's the scene where Mickey asked him to be his manager after Mickey had hilariously insulted him earlier in the movie, several times. You're a tomato. Or the other time and he says, you know, it's a living. It's a waste of a life. And all that self-loathing, all that loneliness comes up, and he yells at Mickey. And it's actually a terrific scene. It's a very well-acted scene. There's a lot of times where Stallone doesn't get the credit he deserves as an actor. But what does he do immediately afterwards? He chases Mickey down, and he puts his arm around him. And we don't even really see what he says. Because by that point, we've established Rocky's character so well that we don't need to see what he says. Yeah, you're right that that scene is crucial for Rocky because it's one of two places where you see this contradiction between his consistently good-natured and, on the other hand, his self-loathing, his anger at the world for everything that has been denied him, for every failure he has had to suffer. Even there, he hides from Mickey in his own apartment up until Mickey, humiliated, defeated, walks away. And only then does Rocky start shouting at his former coach, because it would be too much to do it in person. It would be too unkind. And you're right, then he chases him down, and that gesture, you see it in a long shot, putting his hand across the old man's shoulders. You get a sense of how vulnerable both of them are, and how Rocky extends a kind of protection, and at the same time gets something he also needs from this old man, who really does have the knowledge and discipline. It's a beautiful scene. You see people who have so much defeat behind them that they don't really have any reason to get up in the morning anymore. 
but they can help each other and they can get over their misery in order to do this together. Mickey in the apartment was shouting at Rocky about all his own defeats and sufferings and the misery that has built up in him for so many decades while Rocky is hiding in the bathroom. Mickey as well, he's not just the angry Irish guy. He's not just humiliating people or saying, I'm a businessman. He also had a life, and at that point, it can be revealed because he has something in common with Rocky. And of course, with everyone who has gone through serious failure, humiliation, rejection, through seeing that somewhere else in America, there is great stuff going on, other people live blessed lives, why can't it ever be me? So that's a lot of the emotional power of the movie right there. And you're also exactly right about the importance of this good character. Now, once you see who Rocky really is, and he does have a certain ambition, a certain pride, he wants to do something with his life, you see what it means to get this story right. If you want to see a caricature of Rocky, where this I'm a good-natured American is played until utter absurdity and meaninglessness, it's called Forrest Gump, and it's a far more celebrated movie, although it's in comparison. There, there's no real humanity. That character is not allowed to experience his own life. And so you see what the temptation would be making this movie about how crazy America gets, but this character is always there in his sainted simplicity. Rock is not there in his sainted simplicity. He has suffered all this stuff personally. Everything you see on screen, the grime, the misery, the dirt, the poverty, the assholes left, right and center, everything in the lower classes, and you're right, he's failing at being part of the lower classes at that, everything there has hurt him. And it comes out in various persuasive ways precisely because the movie never hurries past where does Rocky live. What is it like to be him? What is it like to go home in the evening? The more you sympathize with Rocky, the more you begin to realize, yeah, you have to take these minutes and go along with him because you also have to feel what this feels like. Closeness to the character builds and builds and builds throughout the movie. As you said, it's a two-hour movie and ten minutes of fighting tops. There's the beginning minute, there's the end fight, and in between you see most of it Rocky's life. Most of it is not pretty. Nobody would want to see that. But you also see how it has tested him, it has made him in some ways better, in some ways worse, and he has a chance to get his dignity back, to be the man he thought he was going to be, to be the man he knows he should be, but he never sees any opportunity to be that man. And it's also slice-of-life things, like Thanksgiving at Polly and Adrian's house. That is a painful scene. I think our popular memory of that scene is almost completely blotted out, the one where Polly throws the turkey into the alley. It's so unpleasant, and people went out of the movie feeling good, but that's one of the feel-bad scenes of all time. These aren't necessarily class issues. Okay, Polly is a jerk, but something like that could have played out in almost any context. But it's one of those things where, over and over again, Rocky isn't tested by getting punched in the face. Rocky is tested by how do you respond to your circumstances that are on a very small scale. And the fight itself works as a symbol to how Rocky has lived his life. And if you don't have those establishing scenes, that's the real struggle for the character. Can Rocky rise above his own self-loathing to realize that he's not really a bad guy and he's able to do something better than be a leg breaker, which is the real source for Mickey's disappointment with him. Mickey's disappointment isn't just that Rocky could have been a marginal elite level fighter, but instead became a leg breaker. It's that he became a leg breaker instead of getting a real job. Which is an interesting dichotomy with Polly, because Polly has a real job. Polly's a working class guy. Polly has a house, whereas Rocky just has a grimy apartment. 
Yet at the same time, Polly wants to become a leg breaker like Rocky. And Polly is simply unable to recognize that when Rocky says no, they're not hiring for leg breakers. He's actually being kind to Polly. Not just because Polly would be unsuited to the job because he's an uncoordinated fat guy. It would also be because he's recognizing that to a large extent, Polly has a much better life than Rocky does. If only Polly was able to recognize it and appreciate it. But at the same time, he knows Polly can't really hear it like that. If he said that to Polly, he would be dismissed. So he keeps trying to find kinder, more roundabout ways to say it. Once again, Rocky is a guy who's facing constant internal tensions. We can feel his resentments, but he's constantly rising above it. But the rising above it doesn't have any dramatic impact if we can't see the internal tension somehow. And the movie is great at those two things. Constantly showing him struggling with the temptation to lash out, to withdraw, to be cruel, as he sees both people and circumstances conspiring to be cruel. But he's constantly rising above it. Was it C.S. Lewis who says, the reason God says, judge not lest you be judged, is you can't tell what's going on inside. And somebody who's acting like a jerk, given the strains that they might be under, God might see a saint. Given those same strains, somebody else might not simply be unpleasant, they might be, who knows, a serial killer or whatever. When that's kind of what Rocky gets across, where it's not good enough to show Rocky doing the right thing. We have to show Rocky rising above and feeling the internal tension, like when he's talking to that little girl. What does she do after it? She calls him a creepo. He says, yeah, who are you to tell anybody creepo? But what does Rocky do the next day? The next day, he goes back to being Rocky. He doesn't become bitter. He doesn't become angry. Because this is a cycle that's been going on forever. Yeah, the Thanksgiving and later Christmas scene where Polly goes crazy, takes a bat to stuff around the house and says every horrible thing he can think of. You can see everything that Rocky has and Polly doesn't. The kind of stoicism. And this is the strength Stallone brings to acting. He's not impassive. People would say that his acting is wooden, but he's not impassive. His face, his gestures, you see that that's a real guy that you maybe saw someplace or another. He's very recognizable and he's plausible because you see he refuses to let people and things take him over and make him go crazy. And at the same time, you see the punishment he takes for it. This always takes a toll on him and you can see it. Stallone is by no means a great actor, but that is a great performance because he gets a character that's worth seeing and he brings that character out in scene after scene after scene, most of which aren't necessary to the plot, strictly speaking. They're scenes necessary to the character. They're scenes that simply belong to American cinema. This is how we want to see the movies and he does it well in a time and culture where this wasn't everyday fair. He's not simply doing something that had been done before. And it's such a well-done script that you see this contrast between him and Polly. Polly is to an extent a good friend, but he's also nuts. He has no ability to control his own resentments, much less to count his blessings. If you watch the movie a second or a third time, you begin to realize that Polly says a lot of things that you'd expect Rocky to say. Polly goes crazy in a lot of ways you'd expect Rocky to get crazy, but Rocky doesn't. And... That's good drama, and it's good characterization for both of them. And it's, again, a quiet achievement in a movie full of these. It's not the montage for training. It's not just the shooting of the fight. It's all these scenes, one after another, that give you a view of low-class Philadelphia that is unsparing and unflinching without being cruel. It gets sentimental, but not that much. Nor does it luxuriate in misery. It has notes of romanticism, but the romanticism never really rings false, and it never overwhelms either the plots or the characters. Whereas the sequels, they're all about the sentimentalism, they're all about the romanticism, they're all about the fantasy elements of Rocky. 
you know, one of the best things about Rocky, which is also not noticed. After the fight's over, the music is playing a very small piano tune. It's very light. So you can very clearly hear what Rocky and uh, Apollo are saying. Well, Apollo says there ain't going to be no rematch. There ain't going to be no rematch. And then Rocky says, don't want one. And then the music sweeps up and you can't necessarily hear what everyone else is saying. Rocky got it. That's when Rocky understood that it wasn't about money. It wasn't about fame. It wasn't about celebrity. That was Rocky's final temptation. Would Rocky take success to become a different kind of monster? In the course of his everyday life, there's all kinds of ways he's tempted to be a monster. He's a leg breaker by day and a boxer by night. You know, both his job and his side hustle involve hurting people. But he's not somebody who lives his life around hurting people. But now that he's fought Apollo, he's got a chance not to date Adrian, but to become an international celebrity and date other celebrities. He could go to Studio 54. He now had that option, but he's rejecting that option. That's why he says, I don't want one. Because he's not going to become a celebrity. He's not going to abandon his best friend. He's not going to abandon his girlfriend. He's going to live his life with them on his own terms. Which brings us to the sequels. They're basically a betrayal of that version of, of Rocky. Yes, you're right. The two fights that open and close Rocky give you everything you need to know about the character. In the first fight, Spider Rico headbutts him, and that makes Rocky mad, and he beats the daylights out of him and knocks him out. But then as the fight is over, he hooks him with his arm to show that, yeah, we're buddies, we're still alright. Because he's rocky. He gets hurt, these things make him feel miserable, but they don't destroy his character. And the last fight is like seeing his life again and again and again. He gets the daylights beaten out of him. People think he's a dumb, ugly guy. Well, this fight makes him a dumb, ugly guy. He can't speak, he can't see, he looks terrible. He suffers all over again, all the humiliations of his life. But finally, it's a fair fight. For the first time, his life is a fair fight, which is something Americans always want. And of course, it's a human instinct. This is what boxing is for him. The reason he goes into the ring is not meritocracy or achievement or getting the title. He wants fairness out of life, and that's the only place where he's likely to get it, and because this is a fantasy at some level, it's also America looking at him. For once, the country has always ignored him, and by extension, everybody like him. Finally, they pay attention. And don't do it in pity, they don't do it with contempt, they pay attention. And that's, of course, something that everybody wants. Again, nobody can live thinking America doesn't give a damn about you, you don't matter. At some level, you have to be part of America, and so the personal and the political are put together in a story. This man's tragedy and the tragedy of his country, his social class, they're put together in a rather artful way that never gets didactic, never overstates things or turns into propaganda, which, of course, must have been a temptation one way or another at every point in the script. But the script always stays away from cheap shots, from easy success, all to give you this guy who has one chance to prove his dignity, that he can do well enough. He's never going to be that guy that people want to worship. Every time you see a celebrity, is a guy who's just like you and me, but he somehow shot to the top. Nobody cares about you and me, but that guy is viral and trending and popular, and he's got the numbers to prove it, and you and I are part of those numbers. The ones who like him or share him or pay his salary or what have you. And so people naturally hope that in some way, with their aspirations, they rise with their celebrities, but that's not true, and it's in a certain way nutty. Whereas Rocky is trying to get uh, his dignity back. He's not trying to sell a national fantasy, much less sell himself on that fantasy. 
after he accepts doing the fight, he starts having his moments of doubt and misery because he realizes he's not a moron. He realizes that he's being played for a punching bag, that he's being humiliated, that all this patriotism, it's the bicentennial year, it's the fight in Philadelphia, it's black and white, it's Uncle Sam wants you. All this stuff, it's all pageantry, it's all a lie. It's the lie that people feed themselves so that they can put up with the misery and keep feeding the celebrities who lord it over them. That's not what he's there for. He realizes he has got to get his dignity out of this. That's what defines who Rocky is. Why didn't he ever get a job somewhere? Why didn't he ever do some kind of factory job or some slaughterhouse job like Paulie does or something like that? He is defined by being a warrior. He knows that this is insane, that you have to be stupid to be a fighter, that it's miserable. And he tells Adrian as they fall in love, he doesn't hide his own self-loathing or his own realization that this is not what he should have done. He tells her, the worst thing in the world is the morning after a fight. Everything that you thought in the moment, all the energy, all the striving, you all pay for that illusion. Every ache in every place and they don't go away and the world isn't there and there are no rewards. You're alone in your misery and you have to live with it. He knows all that, but he's an honorable man. There is a relationship between the fact that he's not giving up on being better to people than people are to him and the fact that he's angry at the world that has given up on him. There's no honor for the honorable in this slice of America at least and honor it's bought and sold at celebrity shows and that really is a disgraceful thing. Rocky, his patriotism is not about having success, patting himself on the back and snowing the country, saying, you people are great for putting me on top of you all. He loves his country, but it's breaking his heart. That's what patriotism feels like to him, and that's what it feels like in Rocky. You recognize America at every place in the story. Most of it is ugly, but you know, it's still lovable. That's an unusual achievement. One of the themes of the movie is transcending the fighting. Now, on one level, it's not about winning because where does the music reach a crescendo in the fight? When Rocky gets up, when he actually breaks Apollo's ribs and gives himself a realistic chance of winning the fight in the final round, the music is actually much lower because that's not the important part. The important part was Rocky getting up, not in the final round, but in the second to last round. That was the emotional high point of the fight. He's transcending boxing itself. I mean, when Rocky ends, do we assume that he's going to go back to being a leg breaker for the mob? Nope. So why do we assume he's going back to being a boxer? He specifically said he's not going to be a boxer. The fight itself is a final stage to Rocky moving on from being a boxer. He's a marginally talented fighter who is aging. It's why the movie doesn't entirely tip over into romanticism. Rocky at his best is not quite as good as Apollo at his absolute worst, because Apollo isn't taking the fight seriously, he isn't training seriously, he's not focused. Apollo still wins the fight, but at the same time, Rocky can now move on. But at the end of the day, partly because of the audience and partly because of Stallone, Rocky didn't follow the course that the movie itself implied. Rocky 2 would be a movie where this guy is living down celebrity, he's back in his old neighborhood, and he's trying to make some kind of decent life for himself there. It is not a movie where all his self-doubt, all his physical hurt, all his knowledge of his mortality and vulnerability has been washed away and he's been turned into a killing machine. Rocky ends with the end of his career. He has his Aristea like a Homeric hero. His moment of greatness. And his specific greatness is endurance. He has great heart. 
That's it. He's not a winner. He's never going to beat real fighters. Apollo Creed is a kind of Achilles. Fast and strong, nobody has gone the distance with him. At his worst, somebody like Rocky who has so much endurance and of course will pay for it for the rest of his life. That doesn't magically wash away in the sequel. He will be able to humble this guy a bit. There won't be no rematch. That anger and that show of contempt is fear, awareness of the mistakes he had made. Apollo realizes he failed at a very important level. He was too arrogant to be serious. Rocky is too serious to be arrogant. He's not a winner. He doesn't think he's a winner. He's not looking for a future of fake victory, of fake success, of fake immortality and fake power. He's not trying to climb up on that pedestal and be the Greek god America can worship. The only scene outside the fight where you see his muscles, his physical shape, when he's trying to seduce Adrian, you see all his insecurity and vulnerability. He knows he's not a living statue for America to worship. If this girl loves him, then he's okay with that. That's good enough. And instead of getting that, America and Sylvester Stallone conspire to tell us all these other fairy tales we should be talking about now, where all our success worship can be moralized in various aspects. I think Rocky II does extend one theme from Rocky. Rocky isn't just about a fighter. It's not even about Rocky. It's about Stallone as an artist. And there was always a pro-celebrity streak. And it's there in Rocky if you look really closely when Rocky says he wants to go to distance to prove that he's not just another bum from the neighborhood. That's Stallone talking about his own ambitions as an artist. He doesn't want to be just another guy. Rocky too is about the conflict between celebrity and the lure of celebrity and other aspects of life. In other words, you have a wife who's in the movie now an obstacle and she doesn't want him to fight and Rocky is failing at every other thing he might do and he goes back to being a fighter because at the end of the day it's not about being a successful business man or worker or dad or husband it's about that win in the ring and to some extent the ring can be a metaphor for being a hollywood celebrity that was the internal struggle i suspect that stallone was facing he was basically a screenwriter who slingshotted himself into being an actor by writing this outstanding script and the movie is trying to harmonize all the elements of his life in other words he wants to have artistic integrity he wants to tell important stories and you know he's growing up himself there's family issues but in reality since it's a movie ultimately about a fight it doesn't actually harmonize them it's about the triumph of celebrity the triumph of being in the arena, the triumph of being seen to be a winner over every other element of life. The movie tells us that Rocky can have it all, just like Stallone can have it all. His celebrity, his traditional family life, artistic integrity, and he can have all the money, and he can keep making sequels to Rocky, no matter how much they undermine the theme to the first Rocky movie. The movie ultimately fails because he can't. You can see it both in the movie. You can also see it also in Stallone's life. You do have to make a choice. And he made his choice, and the public made their choice. They chose a fantasy version of Rocky, who was a very flattened out, very strange, very selfish version of Rocky, over the guy that they liked in the first movie, because they liked certain of the superficial elements over the humanity. And the movies themselves become more and more disconnected from reality. Which isn't to say they're entirely bad. Stallone's a little bit out of his time in that Stallone is a great writer of vaudevillian skits in an era where vaudeville is not a respected form of comedy. The Colonad is a hilarious vaudeville skit. Made 30 or 40 years earlier, it would have been a classic. 
But at the same time, it's also playing for laughs, the fact that this guy's brain-damaged illiterate. And it does have a little bit of a sting to it. But the rest of the movie is how this brain-damaged illiterate is completely incompetent at everything in life other than being a fighter. He goes back to fighting, and he wins now. And once again, this is the movie where it loses all contact with reality. And Rocky, an aging fighter who never got out of the clubs but is really talented, gets everything together and gives the champ a scare. In the second movie, the ultra-talented champ somehow loses to this guy. But it's not simply false because he beat Apollo. Beating Apollo is the culmination of everything that's already been false in this movie. Yes, that's very well put. Redemption would look different in Rocky and Rocky 2. Rocky 2 starts as a movie about how screwed up celebrity is and what a failure you are if you are a celebrity. And if you think love of victory is going to redeem you, that's just because you're running from every misery in your life because you've been given everything and are screwing it all up. Whereas Rocky in the first movie was screwing up as a human being, not mostly through his fault, because the circumstances, because the country, because the people are as they are, in this other situation, he's got it all, and he's throwing it all away because it got to his head, because he tried to become what everybody wanted him to be. Rock, you're the greatest, you're the greatest. And two-thirds of the movie really is about him embracing being that wreck, because it's really polished, and people applaud you for it. It's the suicide note of an artist. You would expect a movie where he does fight and he's beaten because of his arrogance, which is what happens in Rocky 3, of course, and then becomes contrite and learns about his humanity, which is what happens in various degrees in Rocky 5 and Rocky 6. If you look through those other movies and you throw out all the obviously fantastic things that seem like commercials for something we want to buy, here's my idealism and take my money too, there would be a good movie about a guy who ended up at the top or thought he was because celebrity fakes the meaning of success and has to fail and to be beaten up in a whole new way by life in order to realize I got high and I need to crash. And now I need to learn right from wrong again and do that decent thing that I could have done after success, but which success itself deluded me out of being able to do. That movie was never made because partly it's a story we don't want to learn. The audience is told Stallone what they wanted more of, and as the movies progressed, he gave them less and less of what he felt, more of what they wanted him to look like, what they wanted him to do. That's a crazy way to go as an artist, but it's also almost impossible to do otherwise. Some people manage to avoid the sequels, for better or for worse, but the audience is a ruler, and the artist really is only an advisor, and it's very, very hard to resist this combination of success and pressure, because you're supposed to have another success, and you cannot have another success unless you give people what they think they want, which is not what they really want. Yeah, one of the relatively few artists who've managed to walk away from properties that were successful at the top would probably be Jerry Seinfeld and Dave Chappelle. Jerry Seinfeld could have made far more money by producing a mediocre show for another two or three years. But he just said, at some point, an artist has to tell the audience, no, that's it. For the piece of art to make sense, you can't keep changing the piece of art because at some point it's complete and you need to move on to another piece of art. Dave Chappelle, he left the show at the peak of its popularity because he recognized he looked inside himself and he couldn't produce that much material that would have been up to that standard and would have had integrity. 
He could have produced material. He could have produced a certain amount of programming, but at some level it would be stealing and on some level it would be defacing his earlier work. So he moved on to something else. He moved on to producing other artworks, which might be good or which might be bad, but would not actually be defacing his previous artwork. And he talked about how difficult that was. The way they trap him is they have him grab a sugar cube and the monkey doesn't let go, so he's trapped. And what he said was he just had to learn to let go. He had to learn to move on. He had to learn to to do what he wanted to do, even if it wasn't always necessarily what the audience wanted to do in the moment. But at the end of the day, Stallone preferred to be a celebrity rather than to move on to something else. Yeah, these are very good examples, partly because they made shows. Those are somehow repetitive by themselves, but also because they paid a massive price for their decision to walk away. Leaving aside things that we can't really know, the mental breakdown at some level, because what your life has been for years is not there anymore. But also all the money you lose and just going dark, disappearing from the world for so long. And so we need to talk about love and money. In America, if people give you money, they give you love. Seinfeld was defining for the 90s because they were an age of misery, spiritual exhaustion and self-loathing at a massive scale, but he managed to laugh at it as opposed to the prettied up, gussied up spiritual desiccation of friends where you see husks of human beings, ready-made celebrities that nobody could possibly admire or tolerate even. These were massively popular shows, but at least Seinfeld realized it's over, the joke is gone stale. You cannot let these people take over your life. They bought and paid for you, but it's over now. And so also with Chappelle, who had even more of a breakdown. And they're never going to get their careers back. They're never going to be loved again. They're never going to be culture-defining. They can live off their legacy. They can maybe add some few things to it, but it's over. And that's really, really hard to live with that. You're riding the wave in a country where change is changing all the time. This is your one opportunity. Don't let go. Ride that wave for all it's worth. And nevertheless, they instead embrace normality, however shocking it's got to be. That's something that Stallone could never do. What's worse is that unlike Jerry Seinfeld and Chappelle, who are basically teaching their teaching about things on their show, one lesson here, one lesson there, and all the fun in between, Stallone actually had a career. Stallone had Rocky, but then he moved on to Rambo, which is a very different sort of story, even if it has lots of similarities as an underdog story, if you want to put it in the abstract. There again, he completely screwed up a franchise because he couldn't walk away, and he kept doing this, and of course we'll do a Rambo podcast another time. But he had options, he had other ideas, and after his celebrity collapsed in the 90s, he actually made movies that are interesting. Copland is famous, but there are others that are good movies to watch and have none of the insanity of the sequels, but they also don't have any of the greatness of Rocky and also, what's worse for him, none of the success, none of the glamour, none of the worship that comes with money and timeliness in America. And that's the thing that's so hard to live with and so hard to live without when once you've had it. Nobody wants to give it up, but everybody knows that it's going to go away. This is not your property. You are the property and you will be discarded. Try as you might, desperate as you get, something else will show up. You cannot change people's love of novelty. You can only be the novelty for so long. What's interesting is he does seem to have a lot of self-awareness about the issue of celebrity. And he seems to document it. But at the same time, he seems helpless to deal with the problem. 
It's like talking to an addict who keeps relapsing. The Rocky movies are not blind to what he's doing to his own career, to how progressively less ambitious they are becoming. They're not even blind to the irony of their own existence. But at the same time, he doesn't stop doing it. Within the Rocky sequels, especially Rocky 2 and 3, there's a lot of self-loathing in which the author is confessing about how guilty they are. That on one level, these movies are not proud of themselves. And the author is confessing within the movie. He's winking at the audience that, you know, we are conspiring and creating junk here. Now, I actually don't think they're totally junk. They all have certain redeeming qualities. If you weren't holding them up to the standard of the first Rocky, I think Rocky IV is a very entertaining movie. But thematically, they're all betrayals of the first Rocky movie. There's no amount of wit that's going to change that until you can reconnect with those themes of the first Rocky movie which Rocky Balboa halfway does, and in which Creed, I think, more completely does, you still have that problem. It's an okay movie, but at the same time, you don't get that same feeling. And Stallone isn't the only addict. We keep going back to Star Wars movies, because we keep expecting movies that make us feel like Empire Strikes Back did, but none of them do. Yeah, so always you see this, we do expect on the one hand to feel great again, and on the other hand, if you're an artist, you want to capture to some extent what it is that attracts your audience. Not necessarily what they think was great, but what is memorable in a work of art. What character can it show you, and how does a story develop? What is the surprise there that becomes memorable? And that does set some kind of standard, but it splits up in two different directions that almost never match. On the one hand, the audience wants a certain feeling of familiarity. I possess this character now. But on the other hand, you can't keep telling the same story. You can't fake the surprise. You would have to actually figure out what is there left to say. But often what's worth saying is not something artists feel they could persuade audiences to listen to. People would have to lower their expectations some, and artists would have to raise their level of courage and risk-taking, and it almost never seems to happen. We are somehow condemning by success the very things that really get at something worthwhile to us. Also, it isn't the audience's job to know what they want. You see this in Star Wars. In Empire Strikes Back and Star Wars, people loved lightsabers. But one of the reasons why they loved lightsabers is that every time a lightsaber is activated in those two movies, it's almost a holy moment. So you have the Lucas prequels. They have a lot more lightsabers. Oh, man, I always wanted to see a bunch of charging Jedi with lightsabers destroying completely depersonalized and totally incompetent robots. Well, why don't I feel the same about all these? I love lightsabers. Now, there's a lot more lightsabers. Why don't I feel that way? Well, it's not their job to say, listen, lightsabers only matter to the extent that the story makes them important. But at the same time, if you ask the audience, what do you like? Lightsabers. Okay, lightsabers. What I like about Rocky? Fights. Okay. No one ever says they like the Thanksgiving scene in Rocky, but it's a much lesser movie in the absence of that. In fact, the fighting minus those things, it doesn't matter. But it's not the job of the audience to plot out your movie for you, to create the stakes for you. Yeah, you're right. So this is something that writers and producers need to understand. If you ever ask people uncomfortable and painful stuff, you saw somebody suffering and you thought, yeah, this is real, this is the country we live in, how did that feel? The answer is always going to be it felt bad. Nobody comes in for that, nobody says, this is what I want, could I have this 24-7? But that is the thing that makes it worthwhile, memorable, it raises the stakes, it makes the dramatization plausible. 
and the writers and the producers somehow never have the guts to say, you know what, this is how it's going to have to be. You get the happy end after two hours of the drama. You'll love it when you go there. You'll come back for it. It doesn't matter if you think that, no, that's unpleasant. I don't like that. I would like more fun. No, you'll love it. You loved it the last time. Trust me. Either the studios are too cowardly and think of movies and characters at the level of selling toys and no further, or the artists themselves are too scared and in certain ways used up. It's really hard to get the confidence that you have another story to tell. It's hard to have any kind of success and then say to yourself, what if I didn't have this success? What story would I really want to tell? To go back before everybody was flattering you and at the same time pushing you to make them feel good. That's something that we're simply not able to do as a culture and as a business. Producers and studios seem utterly insane and do not understand what it means that they own property. You have to make it work. If the car won't run, it doesn't matter if it looks like a goddamn Maserati. So also with characters and the stories people associate with them. And on the other hand, on the cultural side, the press is incredibly incompetent. If people in the press, in the film criticism, had liked Stallone and Rocky, if people had not resented it, they would have loved the sequels as camp. This was a beloved term in the 70s. They would have loved them as irony, self-consciousness, self-referential, meta-narrative movie-making. Nobody ever deploys these collegiate words about Rocky or Stallone because his mumbles. Nevertheless, as you pointed out, the sequels like Rocky 3 starts with him fighting a wrestler. That's the epitome of self-loathing for Stallone. Yes, people, it's all fake. Well, the thing is, I think the Hogan scene is probably the best scene in the movie. You would have had a really good short movie if you just had the Hogan scene, because that encapsulates the entire movie. Now, there are lots of great things about the Hogan scene. The dialogue between him and Mickey, there are some really sharp lines in there. This is like stuff that would have been in a 1930s vaudeville act, a high-level vaudeville act, because most alone and Burgess Meredith have terrific comic timing and they play off each other very well. It's a very good scene, but as you point out, it's all phony. It's all a joke. His life has become phony. His life has become a joke. But at the same time, he's not just talking about what Rocky's life has devolved into. It's about what Stallone's career has devolved into. In other words, he has all the superficial elements of success, but success has hollowed him out as an artist. And instead of having a deadly serious fight with Apollo Creed, now he's having a show fight with a ridiculous clown in the form of Hulk Hogan. Formally, the movie is about resolving this conflict him getting his artistic integrity back. But the existence of the movie undermines that point. If he had his artistic integrity back, he probably wouldn't have made Rocky Three. Every element of the movie is a lie. You need to get the Eye of the Tiger back. Well, the Eye of the Tiger would be Sylvester Stallone going and writing another script about something else. It might even be about doing what he eventually did and letting some other hungry writer tell a Rocky story with him. But he's not willing to do those things. He's cashing in one more time. He's making another glossy movie about Rocky, whereas the first movie isn't glossy at all. This movie is entirely glossy. Every character looks like they've been laminated. It's all in the directing style. Stallone's conversation with himself in the movie is much more interesting than anything in the movie itself, because the dialogue is pretty terrible. Both the training and the fights themselves are completely ludicrous. About the only times in the movie that are emotionally affecting would be what? 
Rocky's conversation with Mickey, where Mickey confesses that Rocky's entire career since Rocky II, or maybe Stallone's entire career since Rocky, has been a fraud upon the public. There's a lot of artistic confession going on here. It's not confession and repentance. It's confession and then going into a conspiracy with the audience. The movie confesses that it's creatively bankrupt at the beginning and then says, but we're all going to go through with it anyway at the end. We're going to pretend that there's something credible about Rocky's training method with Apollo Creed, that a guy who was a plodding, marginally elite boxer six years ago, now in his mid-30s, is suddenly going to become an agile boxer after having suffered all so much more brain damage after being that much older. That's nuts. In Rockies, he stops looking like a boxer and starts looking like a competition bodybuilder. Everything about the movie is becoming less and less realistic. It's tipping over entirely into fantasy, but it's a fantasy in which the creators, obviously, he hates himself for doing this. He's resenting the audience for doing this. And the audience at this point is looking at it less like the fight in the first Rocky movie and more like a fight in a Tom and Jerry cartoon, where if they were to start hitting each other with comically oversized mallets, it would be about as realistic as anything else that happens in the third act. Yeah. I hear you talking, I think this is what we're doing with most Marvel movies. Everybody knows the stakes aren't real, but they are comically inflated. But it's such a fun show and we're used to all these characters, how can we say no to the second, third or fourth one? We can never say no and they can't ever say no either. Some of them have something really worthwhile and it's inevitably betrayed. Every time they pretend the stakes are real, we know the stakes aren't real. Everything that is at any point said will be taken back later. Well, there are a few exceptions, but mostly this is how it works, and this is where this comes from. Somehow in the 70s we turned cinema into B-movies without realizing it, and we did it a old-fashioned way of B from the old Hollywood of the 30s or from the novels before that. Sequels, serialization of increasingly pointless stories that show that neither we nor our authors can really deal with letting go of a character, at least for a while, at least up until something worthwhile comes. We gotta have that next installment. The culture requires it, the consumption of products takes complete control over the production of works of art. Yeah, we look at Christopher Nolan and Batman. Trilogy ended with Bruce Wayne walking away like Lee Corbos. You refound the city, then you leave, then the story ends. Doesn't really matter what it is after that. But you look at Marvel versus the Rocky movies, Rocky is 2, 3, and 4, is that occasionally you will have character development that is both true and pleasantly surprising. You see that all over the Avengers where Rocket Raccoon and Thor and Iron Man and Peter Parker, they've all developed relationships. And you're right that the cosmic threat in the first movie is defeated, but it doesn't solve it because there's a cosmic threat in the next movie. But these characters are changing in realistic and human ways, which was an unexpected pleasure. Yeah, that's true. And it's underrated, actually, that they develop symbols of fatherhood, of friendship, of all sorts of things, depending on the character, that are actually well done. They dramatize something that we do like to see and that oftentimes is true. But, you know, those aren't movies. No. Those are short stories. Uh, Ant-Man was a pretty, was actually a very good, good little movie about downwardly mobile single parenthood. Belongs to its own genre with uh, Taken and Night at the Museum. They're very different movies, but they're all about what happens when you're a divorced downwardly mobile dad. Yep. And Ant-Man and the Wasp wasn't as good because it couldn't find a similar thematic element. That's a movie about boomer retirements and yeah. golden parachutes and yeah, the- worship of Silicon Valley. And that's completely inhuman compared to Ant-Man, which was really humanistic. 
you're right about that. But nobody cared about that, apparently, and so we got something else instead and all these other things. Somehow, when they get symbols right and they're worked out in a thoughtful way that you think this character has depth here, this is a human thing that I know about, then it all goes away, which is nutty, but it's somehow it's inevitable because of what we've done to the culture since the well, 70s. Hello? They're all movies about reconciling what it's like to be a single dad. In other words, you're going to have your own romantic relationship, you have your kid, you're downwardly mobile, you're probably not going to be the economic success of some of your peers. And another movie that's like that is The Santa Claus. They're all actually the same movie, even though some of the thematic elements are different. But those movies end with reconciliation. They're done. That's why Santa Claus 2 is not a particularly good movie, because the center of, of Santa Claus is his relationship with his kids. So if you remove that, it's gone. Taken is absurd, not just because his family keeps getting kidnapped. It's that this particular arc is over now. And since he doesn't have the arc of how does he become a father in the context of being divorced, now it's just empty. And yet you have the same problem with Night at the Museum. It's not about his relationship with the son anymore. Suddenly it's a relationship between him and a mannequin. Granted, that mannequin is Amy Adams, and I find that really tempting. But it's not really as engaging a story. Just like with the Rocky sequels, you have some of the externals, but you don't actually have the emotional drivers of the original movie. Whereas, to be fair, the Rocky sequels, a lot of them tried to find new emotional drivers. I don't think they succeeded, and Rocky V was a very ambitious movie that was a complete failure. Rarely do you see a movie that's that bad. It's Superman 4 level bad. But at least with Superman 4, nobody's trying to make a good movie. Everyone involved knew it was going to be terrible going in. With Rocky 5, they're trying to make a good movie, but they just failed spectacularly. I think Rocky 4 is an extremely enjoyable little movie. It's not trying to tell a great personal story. They just shamelessly embraced the absurdity of what had happened. They cut all ties with reality, and they just tried to make a movie that would be visually stunning, that would leave the audience in awe, and every scene is created with this idea. The first Rocky movie tried social realism with elements of romanticism. I think Rocky IV is a completely surreal movie. It's closer in tone to The Evil Dead 2 than it is to Rocky, and I don't mean that as a criticism. Rocky IV has a lot of really powerful visuals that don't add up to a movie and never really try, but at the same time, while you're experiencing them, they're perfectly enjoyable. It's like people who tell tall tales. Doesn't mean that they're not very attractive. Uh, of course, if it hadn't been Rocky, you wouldn't be paying attention, but because it is Rocky, you can't really be satisfied with how funny it is because of what a travesty it is at the same time. Because the conflict is entirely fake. America in the 70s and Rocky in the 70s go together pretty well, sometimes very well in Rocky. America in the 80s and Rocky in the 80s have absolutely nothing in common in Rocky IV. It's just a Cold War fantasy, dramatized with the tools of Hollywood. There are Cold War elements to it, but they almost seem to exist in a dream logic. It's not even surrealism in the sense of Rocky is much more cut than you would otherwise be. You have one absurdist event after another. It's not exactly comedy, but you have James Brown singing Living in America on a floating stage. Then you have Apollo Creed in American flag underwear being killed by a giant Russian. Then Sylvester Stallone is outrunning a KGB car and running up a Russian mountain. And in a franchise where the movies have become increasingly absurd, the fight between him and, and the Russian, where he gets hit coming in and he flies backwards, you know, 15 or 20 feet as if there had been an artillery explosion. And if they had actually, like, animated in a little mushroom cloud as it was happening, it would have actually hurt the movie. I mean, I think cartoon sound effects would have elevated the fight. 
Then he wins the Cold War by the end of the fight. It, the Russians are all cheering him and freedom, I guess. The movie becomes so absurd. If at the end of the fight he had won in the final round by having Apollo's trainer cut his arm off and attach a chainsaw and having him kill the Russian with the chainsaw, it would not altogether have been out of place. Yeah, there's no going around the increasing insanity of the stories or the removal from any personal reality we would recognize and understand. At the same time, it fulfills something all the Marvel movies do. Marvel movies are Christianity for people who can't get their asses in church, and so at the end of the movie, Iron Man has to sacrifice his life and then is resurrected. Or all the Guardians of the Galaxies do it holding hands kumbaya and they are all resurrected. We cannot get rid of the story of the Christ, we can just caricature it endlessly. Yeah, they have saved the universe, yeah, that thing happens. And you know what's cool about Guardians of the Galaxy? There will always be more. In the next movie, there are more of them. In the next movie, more of them still. That's a story about orphans. There are more and more of these stories. What's it like being an orphan? Why is this so traumatic? So is Deadpool. In Deadpool 2, there is actually a moment when a kid says, You sacrificed yourself for me? Just like Jesus did, kid. But it's Deadpool Jesus. He's cool. He curses. So this story keeps happening again and again and again and again with more and more insane ways that at the end give you a more and more insane, utterly cartoonish resolution to a plot that wasn't much to begin with. It's amazing because we keep doing this. Clearly we have completely devolved below the level of having plot in movies. We just have the working out of symbols that sometimes are done well because they're grounded in a human psychological experience that we all know at some level, but we don't often dare deal with. We don't talk much about divorced dads, downward mobility, PTSD with Iron Man or things like that. It's good to see them dramatized. You can experience it without having to say it out loud. But then they get nuttier and nuttier and nuttier. And we can't help it because we can't make that choice. Okay, let's tell a story worth telling. There's more in this character than just selling the toys. Let's tell a story worth telling. Neither as a culture with criticism and fans and all that, nor as a business with Hollywood can we really have this level of sophistication that happens in a first story. It's almost never matched in any of these franchises, but unlike in the past, the second, third, fourth movies, they make more money. And so they completely shut out whatever artistic impulses there are. And you can see that the fate of Stallone is also replicated in the fate of Marvel. Stallone was almost a star, was sort of a star, was a celebrity. The celebrities today, the guy who plays whatever hero some kid likes, those aren't stars. Those people don't have careers except as they are owned by Marvel. They're not going to go away and make other movies that are great. They are owned wholesale in the public imagination. And Disney owns all our memories. From your preliterate childhood at Disney World to your old, old age, all your memories will be owned by Disney, one character and his stories at a time. And they own the actors too. Nobody would care about any of these actors otherwise. Well, all these stars are going to be replaced within the next five or ten years. I mean, we're going to get a new Iron Man. We're probably going to get a new Captain America. We're probably going to get a new Thor at some point. And the thing is, the intellectual property continues. But that's because Disney is a company that continues in perpetuity. They're going to own the IP. They're going to try to, to maximize it. What's interesting is Stallone seems to have taken a real proprietary interest in Rocky. He didn't like sell Rocky to like Paramount and said, you know, make whatever Rocky you want. He seems to really care about it. And the thing is, one of the reasons why there's so much obvious self-loathing, especially in Rocky 3, is that he does seem to feel guilt about what he's doing, and it gives the movies a wink. 
there's actually one scene in the middle of Rocky IV where Adrian, the voice of reason, says, what's the point? What are you going to do? I mean, so you beat out the Russians. Apollo's still going to be just as dead. What difference does it make? And Rocky says, well, that's what I'm a fighter. That's what we do. And really? I mean, you're going to be 70 years old fighting somebody in a nursing home? That's what you do? I mean, the movie's telling you that Rocky shouldn't be fighting anymore, but both Stallone and the audience insist that he's going to fight, even though it doesn't make any sense. He's now, what, 39 when Rocky IV came out? He should be trying to figure out how he should live as a post-fighter. Not going to rush him becoming an ever more fantastic version of his boxing self. And Adrian tells him. And what does Rocky do? He goes into his car and they start playing that music. He's seeing all these decontextualized moments. And once again, the impression is somebody caught in a nightmare. You keep reliving individual moments, not necessarily in temporal order. Whatever's flashing in front of your brain. And the entire movie's like that. Cut together like a bunch of scenes. You can recut Rocky IV and tell it in almost any order. And it would make just as much sense. Yeah, there you see the agony of a guy who has done this to his career, who has let himself be absorbed within a character that the audience and the corporation of the studio feel they own and will milk for everything they possibly can. Not as it is, it's the fate of everybody in our times. It's, this is what Marvel is all over. It's 40-year-olds reenacting the fantasies of 20-year-olds. That's who their character is. The only thing, as you said, is they will get rebooted themselves and probably none of them will have careers otherwise. Their movies aren't big otherwise. They don't have a chance somewhere else. And that's a damn shame. Well, the one advantage that the Marvel movies have at their best, and I would include the Mad Max movies, they go to the level of folklore. You can tell different versions of the same story with different messages. You can tell one kind of Batman story that's about personal vengeance, and you can tell another kind of Batman story that's about city building. You can tell one Superman story that's about community and another Superman story that's about religion. You can do the same thing with the Marvel stories. They don't necessarily have to have continuity. They don't have to be part of the same meta-narrative. There doesn't have to be continuity between Mad Max Movie 1 and Mad Max Movie 2. Mad Max is like Robin Hood. He's a story we tell ourselves. I thought one of the best descriptions of Mad Max is, Mad Max is not our nightmare of the future. It's the far future's story about its own nightmarish past. It's people in the year 2500 telling stories about the year 2000-ish after some kind of disaster. And Mad Max is like Robin Hood, a story they tell about those horrible times. It's a very good point to understand what our culture is now. You have to imagine the stories of Greek mythology, but without any Homer ever showing up, without any tragic poets. Just stories people tell. The characters have a lingering power over our memory. They instantiate a humanity that has been broken up into parts. There is no definitive account of human action, no real wholeness to human life. But there are people that excel at this or excel at that or are memorable for this or are memorable for that. This is what our future will look like. It's a combination of digital technology that has this power. You can always bring back these movies and watch them again. And on the other hand, what Disney has, which is ownership of all our memories. And some combination of them will be like Robin Hood and Sherwood Forest, but for an age of corporate control of digital technology and intellectual property. That's the downside to the folklore element, that folklore only works because it's in the comments. If it's not in the comments, you don't have as much folklore. That's why people are so mad about Star Wars. Oh, you changed this about this character or this about that character. That's because for them, there's only one version of those characters, the official corporate version of that character. Whereas if they'd been in the commons, 
if you had a reasonable creative regime, where after 30 or 40 years, not necessarily the movie, but the characters of Luke Skywalker, Han Solo, whoever, they went into the comments, and then people can tell their versions of the story, which, by the way, aren't necessarily going to be the same story. They're not necessarily going to be part of the same meta-narrative. But that kind of flexibility allows you to tell different versions of the same story. That's why folklore works, because it's flexible. But since this intellectual property is going to be owned seemingly in perpetuity by a group of corporations, it makes it much more difficult to do that unless you have executives at these corporations who are willing to farm out these properties for those purposes, which is not necessarily predictable. Yeah. Also, on the part of audiences, there is an obsession with canon, which is completely meaningless. You don't have the authors it would take to make up a canon. Canons are always made afterwards, after you get to see which the great authors are. That's a figment of the past that will disappear. Kids who are brought up on YouTube are not going to have the sentiments about Star Wars that people who saw it in 77 have. This is going to disappear in a generation. Nevertheless, you will still have to face this other problem that this is corporate-owned property. Disney has to go digital because America is going digital, but it can't do something like replacing characters with meaningless, vague, abstract content and uh, make the Disney version of YouTube or Netflix. You would have to negotiate some way between making money, because that's what your business is, and on the other hand, getting new talent in to tell different stories. In theory, you could have both. I don't know if the canon is the right word. I don't know that meta narrative is the right word. There's a collaborative superstore. And that can create a sense of greatness, of bigness. And it can create some of the sense of the texture of real life. There's a place where a lot of different things have happened to a lot of different people over a lot of period of time. There's something to be said for that. But at that point, that's a responsibility. You have to keep telling worthwhile stories in this universe. Otherwise, it becomes meaningless. But at the same time, unique space where, you know, this version of Han Solo isn't necessarily the version of Han Solo from episode four. He never met Luke. It's a story about a space buccaneer who's doing a B or a C. Okay. In theory, you could have both. But once again, the nature of intellectual property makes that much more difficult. Yeah. Somehow with technology, this will be tested. Whether corporations retain ownership of characters in order to ensure fan loyalty and you end up being a Disney American, or on the other hand, whether these things are somehow loosed upon the public and there's a lot of fandom and fan fiction or some compromise between the two so that you can still make massive blockbusters but not simply own rights to the character such that it excludes every other form of popular storytelling. Well, Pete, thanks for joining me again and have a great day. Thanks a lot, Titus. My pleasure.